Hello, uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we will give folks just a couple more minutes to join the webinar and then we will get started. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Welcome everyone to today's Journal of Nutrition Education and Behavior Journal Club webinar. This is the fifth in a series of 10 webinars celebrating the best of JNEB. As the official peer-reviewed journal of the Society for Nutrition, Education and Behavior, JNEB advances nutrition education and behavior-related research, practice, and policy. Before we begin, I'd like to review a few pieces of information with you. First of all, captions are available for uh, our live attendees. You can access those through the toolbar at the bottom of your screen. I will be uh, putting today's webinar handout into the chat for you to access and uh, use to follow along. We will take questions at the end of the presentation. Throughout the presentation, please type any questions you may have into the Q&A box and they will be uh, moderated out at the end. When the webinar ends today, you'll be prompted to complete a short survey. Please take a moment to complete this as your feedback is greatly appreciated for future SNEB webinars. This webinar is being recorded and will be available free of charge to SNEB members under the webinar section of the website. Finally, watch for a follow-up email to be sent in the next few days, which will include a link to the recording for this session, uh, the slide handouts, and your CEU certificate for your attendance today. With that, I will now hand things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen DiFilippo, Teaching Assistant Professor at the University of Illinois. Kristen? Thank you. Thank you, Paul. 
Today, our speaker is Dr. Dan Dr. Nancy Weinfield. She is the Director of Research Science and a Research Scientist 3 at Kaiser Permanente's Mid-Atlantic Permanente Research Institute. She is a development psych developmental psychologist with expertise in maternal and child health and wellness. Her research interests include postpartum parental depression, childhood nutrition, and the influence of unmet social needs on health and health disparities. Previously, Dr. Weinfield was a senior study director at WeStat in Rockville, Maryland, and the director of the WIC Infant and Toddler uh, Feeding Practices Study too. I want to thank her for being with us today and sharing her paper. And at this point, I can pass it over to Dr. Weinfield. Thank you. All right. Um, so I'm not having this advance for me. There we go. All right. Well, you already said most of this, Dr. DiFilippo. Um, but one of the things I did want to pause and do is um, acknowledge and thank my excellent collaborator and co-author for this journal, Chris, journal article, Chris Anderson, who is an associate research scientist at PHFE WIC. Um, we worked equally on this and it was a great collaboration. So it, I would be remiss if I didn't thank him. All right, I have no conflicts of interest to declare today. And I wanted to um, pause and talk about the nutrition educator competencies that we'll be covering today. Um, so the webinar will cover the following nutrition educator competencies. Um, describe biological, psychological, social, cultural, political, and economic determinants of eating behavior, and the associated opportunities and barriers to achieving optimal health and quality of life. The focus will be on depression today and infant feeding practices. Describe the major psychosocial theories of behavior and behavior change that, and apply them to eating behavior and behavior change. The theory that we're relying on here is attachment theory, which is a theory of parent-child relationships. And the third competency, analyze, evaluate, and interpret nutrition education research and apply it to practice. And I'll be walking you through the, um, the methodology, the research findings, and the applications of this work to practice. There we go. Um, all right, so study objective here, what were we doing? We were looking at the influence of postpartum depressive symptoms on infant feeding beliefs, feeding practices, and dietary intake choices. Um, and our sample was drawn from caregivers who enrolled in the WIC program. Um, and the nutrition outcomes are the ones that the WIC program emphasizes in their nutrition education for caregivers of infants. Our goal is to identify feeding challenges among postpartum caregivers, in this case, female birthing parents, that might allow nutrition educators to tailor education to match the specific challenges in this group of caregivers. So why study this? All right, estimates really vary, but roughly 13% of postpartum caregivers uh, female caregivers experience depressive symptoms, and this is commonly known as postnatal or postpartum depression. Depression affects a variety of parenting behaviors, and feeding is one of them. 
low-income postpartum caregivers who are receiving WIC have actually been shown specifically to be at risk for depression in past research, and understanding what aspects of feeding are affected by depression may help WIC better customize its nutrition education efforts. Now, the past research on this has focused on very specific things, particular beliefs, particular behaviors, specific foods, or specific dietary intake, rather than larger coherent categories of behaviors that might be targets of nutrition education. And that means that findings have been a little bit mixed. Yes, this belief is affected. No, that one isn't. Yes, it's associated with this particular um, complementary feeding activity. No, it's not associated with that one. So we focus instead on broader domains of infant feeding that might be affected by depression to see if we could, by going up a level, get something a little bit more coherent. So let's review a little bit about depression and effects on parenting. As I mentioned, I'm seeing this through the lens of attachment theory, which is a theory of parent-child relationships. And it suggests that depression affects parental sensitivity. Sensitive parenting is engaging in beliefs, responses, and behaviors that are attuned to the infant and that provide what the infant needs at that moment and more broadly. So the blue boxes on this screen show the areas of parenting behavior that are affected by depression. Depressed caregivers have reduced understanding of infant needs. They engage in practices that aren't responsive to the infant's cues. And they generally have a harder time complying with the complexities of infant care guidance. Um, anything from uh, safety to, to feeding. Um, in feeding specific terms, and th these are the clear boxes. Um, this maps onto feeding beliefs, feeding practices, and adherence to guidance on dietary intake. So it turns out that WIC nutrition education maps reasonably well onto these areas of feeding. WIC addresses feeding beliefs through breastfeeding support to foster positive experiences and beliefs about breastfeeding. They provide education on hunger and satiety cues to educate on developmentally appropriate feeding beliefs um, that are kind of linked to or cued to the child, child's developmental phase. WIC addresses feeding practices through teaching responsive feeding, feeding in ways that read and meet the infant's needs, and through teaching food safety practices for infant feeding. What are the things that you need to keep track of to ensure that your infant is actually having a safe feeding experience? WIC addresses guidance on dietary intake by teaching about the introduction of complementary foods and when specific foods should be introduced or should be held back until later. So WIC strives to tailor all of its nutrition education to the needs of the caregiver and the infant who they're counseling at that point. And this means that understanding the specific challenges associated with a depressed caregiver could help them to tailor their nutrition education a little more effectively. All right, our study data source, this is a secondary data analysis. And it is from WIC ITFPS2, which just I know rolls off the tongue so well. Um, WIC Infant and Toddler Feeding Practices Study 2. 
it is a national, it's actually also called the Feeding My Baby Study. So if any of you have encountered this from the um, side of a WIC site, it's called the Feeding My Baby Study. So it's a national prospective longitudinal study of feeding practices, it covers nutrition, health outcomes from children, of children from birth, actually before birth, a lot of the um, families were recruited as pregnant um, people at WIC sites before the birth of the child. And it goes all the way until the kids are nine years old. Participants were recruited at 80 WIC sites across 27 WIC state agencies in 2013. And this was, the sampling was limited to larger sites. So the sites were those that were enrolling at least 30 new study eligible cases each month. Um, so what was an eligible case? Well, eligible cases were people who were at least 16 years old, able to complete interviews in English or in Spanish, and they were either enrolled prenatally or before their infants were two and a half months old. And it was their first enrollment in WIC for that pregnancy or that child. So they could have been in WIC before, and many were, um, but they couldn't have already been enrolled. We, they, they were caught for the study when they were at WIC, on-site, enrolling in the program, and they were approached, given information about the study, enrolled in the study. And they were retained in the study even if they left WIC. And everyone did, of course, by the time the children turned five. So for the current study, postnatal caregiver telephone interviews um, were used. So there was an initial enrollment in person. And after that, there were telephone interviews regularly. Um, and we used the ones for the study at ages one month, three months, these are child ages, five months, seven months, nine months, 11 months, and 13 months. They were kept busy. Um, the interviews included questions about the receipt of WIC, sociodemographic characteristics, feeding beliefs, practices, dietary intake, and other maternal and child health related conditions and behaviors. And as I mentioned previously, I served as the project director for the study for many years while I was at Westat. Um, so for just a little plug here, anyone who is interested in these data, the public use data is a treasure trove of information about feeding. It's longitudinal, it's in-depth, it's great. And they're available through the USDA FNS website. So if you are at all interested in research with these data, I highly encourage that you go take a look at it. All right, for this study, um, we had 1,851 participants who completed all of those telephone surveys through child age 13 months. And this was weighted um, using weights provided by the study, statistically weighted, to represent the full national population of study eligible infants who were enrolled at these larger WIC clinics during the recruitment period in 2013. And the weights further adjusted for non-response so that it could correct for people who didn't complete all those interviews. And just to check a little bit on the weighting and whether our sample was biased in some way, we conducted a sensitivity analysis. And we compared participants included in the longitudinal sample to those with depressive symptoms assessed at three months, but who were excluded from that sample because of missing surveys subsequently, because it would be entirely plausible that depression would result in a systematic way in people missing interviews. Um, but as it turns out, the weights did a pretty good job. 
and maternal age was the only factor that differed significantly between the groups, and it was already incorporated into the analyses as a control factor through the statistical weights. So we are pretty comfortable that this subsample is representative of the fuller sample of participants. Right, so the variables for this study um, included a measure of depressive symptoms, three measures of feeding outcomes, and sociodemographic covariates. So depression was measured through the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. This is a well-validated depression scale. Um, it's commonly used both in clinical settings and in research. It was administered at the three-month telephone interview for the study and scores of 10 or higher are considered elevated risk for depression. So we um, have a binary variable there. Either people were at 10 or higher and they're at elevated risk for depression versus low risk for depression if they were had a score less than 10. We had the three feeding outcomes. Feeding belief questions were drawn from the three-month telephone interview. Feeding practice questions were drawn from the three-month and seven-month telephone interviews. And the dietary intake questions um, were taken from all the telephone interviews from 1 to 13 months. The sociodemographic covariates were taken from either enrollment or baseline interviews, which took place at the outset of the study. So these were the very beginning of the study, and they included race, ethnicity, maternal education, um, maternal marital status, household income, and smoking during pregnancy. And we determined this list of covariates um, based on those in prior study that had been studies that had been associated with postpartum depression and feeding. All right, for the feeding outcomes, we did take the questions from the surveys, but because we knew we wanted to go beyond these individual um, items about beliefs or practices or intake, and we're specifically focused on broader domains, we conducted latent confirmatory factor analyses using structural equation modeling. It sounds much fancier than it is, but ultimately what it meant is that we included a series of questions um, that we selected from each of the, that, to represent each of these categories from the surveys or the interviews. And um, we conducted a confirmatory analysis to establish that these in fact hang together as a domain. And we got three reasonably well-fitting um, factors, one for feeding beliefs, one for feeding practices, and one for dietary intakes. And you can see on the slide the questions that contributed to each of these factors. So for feeding beliefs, it was about feel beliefs about breastfeeding beliefs about babies needing to always finish a bottle when they start it, beliefs about whether or not a baby knows when they're full, and beliefs about cues to satiety. For feeding practices, it included whether or not feeding was on demand or on a schedule, um, about whether or not they were, they were actively encouraging a baby to their baby to finish the bottle, whether they're propping pillows, uh, bottles up like on pillows and things like that so that they weren't holding the baby and holding the bottle while feeding, 
Um, whether they were mixing formula more than 24 hours in advance and then not discarding it before feeding, and whether they're using infant feeders at seven months, either the ones that are, well, no longer for sale, thankfully, but um, the ones that involve kind of a plunger on the bottom to force um, formula or breast milk more um, quickly into the infant's mouth. Or some people do this through cutting a cross-cut nipple so that the flow is a lot stronger and those pose a choking risk. And in all of the cases, higher factor scores indicated better adherence to recommended feeding outcomes. For our statistical approach, um, we had three multivariate linear regression models, one with each latent feeding factor as the outcome variable. So one for beliefs, one for practices, one for intake. And they were predicted from depression, um, and then also from the covariates. So marital status, household income, race, ethnicity, maternal education, and smoking during pregnancy. And two models were used to evaluate the associations of postpartum risk of depression with each of the outcomes. The first model was just depression predicting the feeding outcome, so unadjusted. And then model two was adjusted for the covariates to ensure that we were dealing with any confounders that might be there. All right, so let's take a quick look at the sample characteristics. And these are weighted sample characteristics. So the weights are applied to bring this back from the sample to the level of representing the population we're looking at. 84% of the participants initiated breastfeeding, although it was a fairly generous definition of breastfeeding. Uh, and the breastfeeding rate actually dropped even before hospital discharge. 22% uh, of the participants identified as Black, 45% identified as Hispanic, and 78% preferred to do the interviews in English, but always had the option of, everyone had the option of opting for Spanish instead, interviewers were um, available who were bilingual. For 42% of the participants, this was actually their first child, and nearly half of the participants were age 26 or older at the start of the study. A quarter of them had less than a high school education, and a little bit more than a third were married. Household income on average was low. Um, it was less than 75% of the federal poverty guideline for most of the participants, which is what you'd expect to see in a sample receiving WIC. And just under 10% of the respondents had a score in the depression screener that indicated elevated risk for clinical depression. All right, so diving into the results. Um, as I, met, as I said, we had a multivariate regression analysis predicting each of the feeding outcomes. And the first thing that we see is the one predicting feeding beliefs. And depressive symptoms were not significantly associated with feeding beliefs. So you can see model one unadjusted, that's just depression predicting the outcome. And then you can see with, when it's adjusted for covariates, um, it's still non-significant. And second regression predicting dietary intake was also not significant. So 
in the unadjusted regression and in the regression with covariates, again, depression is not associated with intake. So depression was not showing an influence on how people think about feeding, was not showing an effect of adhering to dietary intake guidance. But for feeding practices, we found that, in fact, there was a significant effect. So caregivers with an elevated risk of depression, so higher depression scores, had significant, significantly less optimal feeding practices. That's why the coefficient there is negative, um, as compared to caregivers with low risk of depression. And this was robust to adjustment. So you can see that the overall um, coefficient did not really decrease by much when we adjusted for all the covariates. So what we're seeing is a very specific focus of the um, effects of depression on practices. All right, so just to summarize the results, um, caregiver depressive symptoms were significantly associated with feeding practices. So caregivers with elevated risk for depression at age three months reported engaging in significantly less optimal feeding practices as compared to caregivers at low risk for depression. And as a reminder, these practices included things like propping up the bottle, encouraging the baby to finish a bottle, um, regardless of whether they seemed full, using an infant feeder, letting formula sit for more than 24 hours after mixing and then feeding it, and feeding on a schedule rather than feeding on demand. And depressive symptoms were not significantly associated with feeding beliefs and not significantly associated with um, dietary intake choices that were related to the introduction of complementary foods. So how does this connect back to the prior literature? Well, prior literature found that mothers with elevated depressive symptoms are less responsive in their feeding behaviors. Other studies have also found that depression may compromise compliance with health and safety precautions. So our approach of focusing on domains rather than individual beliefs and behaviors is a step toward clarifying the nature of the impact of postpartum depression on feeding. And it really is about feeding practices rather than beliefs or actual intake patterns. So we're specifically interested in WIC nutrition education. So what does this mean for WIC? Well, for both treatment for depression and direct coaching for feeding behavior, WIC could help and seems to be needed. Um, WIC doesn't provide treatment for depression, but they could potentially provide referrals. Now, past intervention research has shown that getting someone treat from treatment for depression isn't enough to change parent-child interactions. It can help with depression, and that's an immeasurably positive thing. But it doesn't help change patterns of behavior that are already there. So you need both to get these caregivers into treatment, and you need to address the feeding issues. So what you're looking at is addressing practices, but 
other aspects of feeding may need some clarification too. It's not changing beliefs from our data to, if someone is depressed, but they may need help taking those beliefs and translating them into what they're doing. So WIC could tailor its nutrition education for depressed caregivers to include an increased focus on feeding practices. Now, WIC does not routinely screen for depression, um, but they could, and some WIC sites do. WIC already does some health screening. WIC screens for anemia. WIC screens um, for overweight and obesity through BMI. Um, and WIC provides healthcare referrals to clients in need of care. And WIC staff in past studies have expressed hesitation about depression screening. And this is because it can be difficult to um, refer clients successfully for treatment. So it would be key if WIC staff were screening to ensure that referrals are available for mental health care. Because it is a genuine concern. If you screen someone for depression, you want to be able to refer them successfully for treatment. So what are some of the limitations of this study? Well, it's a national study and that's great because it has a broad reach, but it may not generalize to smaller WIC clinics within the WIC population, and it may not generalize to non-WIC populations at all. And although the data were weighted and adjusted for non-response, and we did do a sensitivity analysis to ensure that all of that seemed to be working, there may still be unrecognized bias in the group that was retained for longitudinal analysis. And our measures were limited to what the study was able to collect during telephone interviews. These were not face-to-face -face interviews except at enrollment. Um, and so they were all self-report. The Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale is really well validated. It's widely used, but it's not the same as a clinical diagnosis. And the feeding outcomes are all caregiver reported. And there may be some aspects of social desirability that are at work there. So what should future research be to follow up on these findings? I definitely have some thoughts about this. Um, I think an important step would be best practices for screening for depression and referral in a WIC setting. It needs to be an acknowledged and addressed that WIC staff in past research have been hesitant about doing this. And so developing best practices finding out what types of partnerships work for referrals, figuring out how to make people comfortable screening for depression because a lot of people are not comfortable even with the topic. Um, we need research on that. We need to establish what the full array of best practices could be. And our findings point toward a need for tailored nutrition education for depressed caregivers that focuses on practices that focuses on responsive feeding, on food safety, and it would be important to design, implement, and evaluate an intervention to see if it's possible to put those caregivers and their infants on a better pathway. So individual tailoring is, of course, necessary, but what should that individual tailoring look like? Is it any different than what one would do normally with any caregiver? Do you, what types of accommodations would you need to make?
All right. Um, so I'd like to close out um, my portion of this by reviewing the nutrition educator competencies that were covered in the webinar. The first competency, you should be able now to summarize the influence of postpartum depression on infant feeding outcomes. The second competency, you should know that attachment theory, a theory of parent-child relationships, suggests that postpartum depression could affect areas of parental functioning that have implications for feeding beliefs, feeding practices, and dietary intake. And the third competency, you should now be able to take these findings and consider how they should be applied to nutrition education with depressed caregivers. All right, and I would be happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much. If anyone has any questions, please put those in the Q&A or in the chat box. Either will work. Um, so we do have a first question. Is there any research about the impacts of social support from partners, family, or friends on depressive symptoms of new moms and their feeding beliefs or practices? So I am not aware of any that's specific to feeding. Generally, great social support is a mitigator of the effects of postpartum depression, um, but it can be in part through support by taking things off of people's plates. So feeding the infant instead um, would be one example of that. Uh, and people who have great social support are more likely to get treatment, um, but it's not a substitute in any way for getting treatment for the caregiver and helping the caregiver to better address their own feeding practices because feeding continues to be such an important issue and depressed caregivers and their infants who have feeding challenges continue to have feeding challenges well into middle childhood. Is there any research looking at um for people with depression who do undergo treatment if feeding practices improve? They don't improve on their own. Um, so the interventions that have looked at this have found that treating depression is only one piece. Then you have to go in and teach people to undo the patterns that have developed. So you fall into patterns in your ways of doing things and you need to you need help in seeing those and changing them. That makes sense. So is the feeding practice, do you think, a result of the depression or do you think the two just commonly exist together? I think it's a result of the patterns that start because of depression. So you have caregivers who are not, not engaging in sensitive behavior. They're not reading the cues right. Um, sure. And they're misreading them. It's not that they're doing anything intentional. They're just not seeing them and getting used to not, not doing that, not reading that. And once you start doing something, it's your pattern, it's your habit, and you need to undo it. That makes a lot of sense. Was there any documentation of how well the babies tolerated the feeds? And did that factor into the beliefs or practices? There wasn't any documentation of that. All of the um, study data were self-report during interviews. Um, and so it really was about specific behaviors that caregivers engaged in and um, timing of things that they did uh, and beliefs that they held, but 
not anything in the moment of a particular feed. So you talked about the recommendation to do screening and also the recommendation to have tailored interventions. Um, would you recommend that those tailored interventions start immediately when someone screens positive or to start tr depression treatment first and then come back for those treatments or the I think, tailored interventions? Well, depression takes a while um, to, to dig out from. And so I think that starting intervention and feeding practices would be useful because like I said, those are patterns that form. And the earlier you can start a different pattern, um, the easier it will be, the shorter the distance between what people are doing and where they would really like to be when they're free of depression. Makes a lot of sense. Well, I think that is all the questions we have for today. So I want to thank you again, Dr. Weinfeld, for sharing this research. I know I learned a lot listening to you, and I really appreciate your time and your expertise on this topic. So at this point, I can hand it back to Paul. Uh, thank you, Kristen. And again, thank you, Dr. Weinfeld. Uh, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to come here and share your knowledge with us today. Uh, just a few reminders as we close out today's session. Uh, again, please complete the survey you receive uh, after the closing of the webinar. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Be on the lookout for that email with today's recording, handout, and your CEU certificate. If you enjoyed today's webinar, be sure to check out the upcoming webinar section of the website. Uh, the Journal Club continues next Monday. All of that being said, that concludes today's session. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.